Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about teaching chess and chess fiction with Victoria Winifred. So join us as we explore chess teaching in the classroom, moving from teaching to writing chess fiction and encouraging young chess players. Live from York, this is The Late Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash ttradio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag ttradio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. You've been listening. Welcome to the Sunday Late Show. You join me after two relatively painless results days. The first, A-Level and B-Tech day on the 17th of August, saw Ofqual making good on their promise to bring A-Level grades back into line with those of 2019, with a few more of our students being notionally eligible for clearing than in a typical year. My day started at 6am when I drove to work to meet my colleague Stefan, who had designed an excellent spreadsheet predicting what the state of clearing might look like before the results went public at just after 8 o'clock. The chatter on the car radio didn't sound promising. Times Radio were reporting that A-star and A-grades were likely to be scarce, that many students in England were set to miss the grades specified in their university offers, that exam boards were bracing themselves for record numbers of appeals and that places in clearing would be at a premium. In the event, the morning took a relatively strange and slow shape as a handful of emails from disappointed students posed inquiries about subject marking reviews and whether students should release themselves into clearing. The real story of the day, however, soon became the number of our students who were being kept on hold by their first choice institutions, while the universities decided how many applicants they could accept on the back of lower grades. In the event, some students missed their offers by two to three grades, but were accepted by their first choice universities. Others were kept waiting all day for confirmation of their firm choice places. A small number still hadn't heard by the following week, meaning they had also missed the opportunity to negotiate alternative places, sometimes at the same universities, in clearing. On this show last year, we were reflecting upon some of the catastrophically underprepared nature of some of the universities, as they had been trying to provide accommodation for their new undergraduates. And as pictures reached the newspapers of some students queuing for entire blocks to secure a roof and a bed at some university accommodation offices. This year, it seems some universities have forgotten that good first impressions are usually founded on quick, effective admissions decisions. So if you were an A-level student this year who missed your anticipated grades, you were more likely to get into your first choice university but you might have had to wait more than 24 hours after the supposed publication 
national publication of results to find out. Of course, if you were applying from England with A-levels, you had to compete too with applicants from Northern Ireland, where A-star and A-grades came down less sharply, and where AS and A-level qualifications are still coupled, and applicants from Wales, where there was also significantly less pressure on the highest grades. As things stand, most of our students are off to do what they had planned for September 2023. A small number are taking unplanned gap years and reapplying in 2024, largely with strong grades, and a smaller number are thinking over the value of a UK degree over an international alternative. The second results day, GCSE Day on Thursday, continued the theme of back to 2019, with grades 9 to 8 being incredibly hard to get in my own subjects of English literature and English language. And with the country moving back to awarding a third of the national cohort sub-4 grades in English language, grades that schools minister Nick Gibb described as, quote, pass grades, end quote, despite stating in the same sentence that those, quote, who failed to achieve grade four, end quote, in English language, would continue to resit, thereby suggesting that grades one to three were literally unacceptable pass grades. More careful thinking needs to be done around the public definition of grades one to three in English and maths, as everyone would benefit more from clarity and honesty regarding what we might reasonably expect from students operating at this level of competence. In English departments, one of the big challenges of GCSE Results Day lies in working out which students should be pursuing marking reviews and for which papers, when most students are entered for English language and English literature, and cohorts can number a couple of hundred or more. Grade boundaries then become the arbitrarily erected barriers between trumpeted success and everything that comes with its opposite, rejected applications for selective sick forms, mandatory resit classes, November exams, and diminishing HE prospects. Away from the number crunching, spreadsheets and marking review queries, I have been trying to recover my chess rating after a less than stellar recent losing streak over the past fortnight. I'm almost amazed at just how easy it is to go from working with a robust opening repertoire that seems to be doing the job for a stretch of seven or eight victories, only to find that it then becomes virtually impossible to win within only a couple of days, and one has to go back to the board and explore another two or three alternatives to arrest the descent into rating oblivion. Chess has, of course, become the flavour of the month, with the Department for Culture, Media and Sport announcing grants of up to £2,000 for at least 100 primary schools in disadvantaged areas to be spent on chess sets, training and teaching materials for their pupils and staff. Announcing the scheme earlier this week, Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser said, quote, chess is a brilliant way for young people to develop skills such as patience and critical thinking. It is something constructive on which to spend their time and feel part of. It inspires creativity and sparks the competitive spirit. We want to give more young people the opportunity to find the thing that they love and realize their potential. 
So this package is focused on getting more young people playing chess and supporting them to develop their talent. We're also equipping our elite chess players with expert coaching to help them dominate at the highest levels of the global game and restore England's reputation among the best in the world, end quote. Malcolm Payne, founder of the charity Chess in Schools and Communities, who featured on my April 2022 Teachers Talk radio show, welcomed the proposal to get more children playing chess in schools and backed additional plans to have chess tables installed in parks across the country. Reaction to this funding package has not, however, been entirely enthusiastic. Schools Week has calculated that this funding would reach just 0.6% of primary school pupils, which would suggest that its impact is likely to be isolated and small. Others in education have criticised the proposal as a low priority initiative against the backdrop of general budgetary pressures on schools, while others have asked whether there might be any connection between the government's £500,000 investment in the English Chess Federation and the fact that the current Chess Federation president, Dominic Lawson, is the son of former Conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson. This seems a rather cynical objection to me. If schools wish to apply for funding to give their children the opportunity to develop an interest in chess that they can carry through life with them at a time when the sport is more accessible and more popular than ever, then that's surely no bad thing. It's certainly no less valuable a use of public money than that earmarked for renovating tennis courts up and down the country. Previous school chess initiatives have been sponsored through the National Lottery Community Fund, but it seems clear to me that primary schools are ideal settings for shaping a child's earliest experiences of over-the-board learning. In previous shows, we have considered some of the benefits that primary school children might experience as a result of regular exposure to chess, both in class and in a continuous programme of extracurricular activities. We have heard from teachers who use chess as a means of approaching concepts such as pattern spotting, prediction and shape in mathematics, and from those who regard chess as playing a valuable role in teaching children about decision-making, about the consequences of those decisions and about learning from mistakes. In tonight's show, we will explore the role that chess has played in the life of one teacher in the American elementary school system and how she continues to teach children across the world about the principles of the game and of its continuing relevance to young minds. Victoria Winifred was born in Brooklyn and is a newly retired educator, teacher, mentor and chess instructor. Victoria now lives in Tennessee and writes chess fiction for children in which she blends storytelling in the fantasy genre with engaging instruction on the game's rules, strategies and history. And I'm pleased to say that Victoria joins us on the line now from Tennessee. Good, Good afternoon evening. to you, Victoria, and thank yes. you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio today. Thank you so much and good evening to you, Christopher. Can you hear me all right? I think we can. Yep. Are you able to just turn your mic up a little bit for me? Um, I'll speak closer to the phone there. Let's see. That's How's perfect. That? Okay, wonderful. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. 
Maybe we can start, Victoria, by exploring your experience in the classroom. What route did you take into teaching? That's a great question. The answer is most certainly that I took the long and winding route into teaching. Uh, in my youth, I had aspired to be a teacher very young in life, but as most people understand, life tends to interfere at times and get in the way. And I worked in retail, ended up in the business world, in public relations, tourism, and somehow I ended up being a production manager for a large electronic publishing company. And I was doing quite successful there. I was quite successful there. Uh, but do you know, Christopher, that no matter what I did or where I turned, people would constantly say, you should have been a teacher. You should have been a teacher, whether I'm stopping to help the receptionist with something on the phone she's having trouble with and explaining it or helping one of my artists to get acclimated to the job. That phrase would constantly be said to me. And when I heard it, it stirred me a bit inside and every time and not in a great way, it, it agitated me. Does that make sense? It just sort of brought up that feeling. Yes, I did start that process, but you know, I'm older now and it didn't work out. However, when I was 42 years old in the year 2000, I had a moment where I think someone had just said it to me for the 110th time. And I literally looked in the mirror and I said to myself, as I do speak to myself, of course, and I said, you know, you can still pull this off. And that was it. And I found a program at Pace University in New York City, in Manhattan. And uh, I was able to pull together all my existing college credits, complete my bachelor's, ultimately then my master's in education and my teaching license and a few other things. And I ended up becoming a, an elementary school teacher. And it was just a, a joy from the beginning of the journey. I was absolutely thrilled to turn my world around that way. It took a lot of doing, but I just loved being in an elementary school teacher, which I was for over 16 years and also ended up being the uh, new teacher mentor for my school. And what was it like coming into teaching at that relatively late stage with the bigger gap between you and the students in terms of years spent sure. on the planet? I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think kids really think much that way. I was just a person that they met. I, I don't think that's one of the things I love about kids. You know, they just don't look at things the way they thought I was 20. I mean, how could I not love them? You know, they, they don't have a, a range of being able to look at someone and tell them how old they were. And they really don't care. They just know that there's someone there that cares and to help them and to be there for them and guide them. So, so far as my age was concerned, it really just was a, a non-issue. A non uh, I actually, while I was observing, going through all the things that one has to go through in student teaching, and even before that, observing in various schools and districts and poverty levels, et cetera, I actually felt very guilty that I hadn't done it sooner. That was my, my, the first really strong feeling I remember was, I'm sorry it took me so long. And not to myself, but to kids. And that's, go ahead. 
That's an interesting point you make because I, I deliberately tried to resist becoming a school teacher for as long as I possibly could. <laughs> because so? my my mother is also a, was a school teacher before she retired relatively recently. And yeah. I I thought it was a bit of a challenge going in at 26, mm-hmm. I think I was 26, 27 when I started teaching in the classroom properly with secondary age students. But looking back at it, I did feel in retrospect relatively happy that there was a bigger gap between me and the students I was teaching in terms of age, particularly in that secondary school environment. That, that's a good point also. You know, I, when I answered you, I was talking about how the kids saw me, but you're right. From my point of view, I suppose that's also true that I felt a little more in a good position that I was a little bit older. So I would agree with that. So you resisted, did you, Christopher? How long did you resist for then? Oh, I resisted all the way through my postgraduate studies uh, <laughs> for as well, long as I possibly could. Well, some some things, when you have a calling, sometimes you know it's a good thing that you can't get away from it. And, and sometimes, it, it, often, it's the things we run away from in our youth that we're ultimately drawn back to. Hopefully. So tell me about your classroom experience uh-huh. then. Victoria, what did you particularly enjoy about being in the classroom with elementary children? Well, uh, the same types of things that I had, enjo- I had enjoyed from my friends' children when we would go to gatherings. And I would ultimately find myself wandering off with the younger ones and just having delightful conversations about most interesting things. And I mostly then would say that interacting with young minds being in the company of children and really being honored and, and, and given a gift to be able to be someone that emphasized positive things and to grow a positive outlook as best I could within every student, have them look at to the future and think about the things that they could do and uh, would be and that would be possible for them to do. You know, most of my students, or at least many over the years, were in rather dire straits, either because of the districts where I taught, either financially, um, very difficult family situations in many cases, or other things. And because there were so many needs, I was able to pour myself into many different things. Yes, of course, I had a curriculum to teach, right? But there was, at least for a very long time, uh, there was a lot of space in there that I could add that influence besides just in a lesson, just in my personal relationships. And I just enjoyed their brilliance. You know, working with kids, unless you work with children for a long while or a reasonable while, people tend to vastly underestimate their brilliance and the amazing observations and questions that they come up with. Um, so, you know, I've actually you know, told stories of things kids said, and there are people that literally didn't believe me, just the brilliant thing these things these young children would comment on or connections that they would make. So I just love the excitement and the exuberance in children. Now, I've taught up till fifth grade over the years, second, third, fourth, fifth, and I've I mentored teachers in kindergarten and up and all that. Uh, you know, after they, after children get into middle school, it 
for me, it, it was became a little harder because they became so involved in their interpersonal relationships more than connecting with the teacher. So I feel that, and, and there are, I know there are so many teachers in middle school or the co college or university and perhaps yourself, they couldn't imagine dealing with the young ones, you know? So it's wonderful that there's someone for everyone, isn't there? Isn't it a great thing that we're not all the same? Yeah, I think it's a good thing that our profession essentially extends across such a significant period of a person's lifetime, particularly if you take in HE as well, all the way up to, <laughs> in most cases 21 in yes. the uk but then beyond that as well for later later life learners it's, it's an active powerful thing to be involved with it is and another thing that i was able to do is combine my interest in the students with my lessons as i got to know their personal interests and passions i tried to refer to those things in my lessons when i planned my lessons i loved planning it with little uh, whether it was just a comment or an analogy or a visual of some sort, just to see the faces light up that I had included the thing that they'd talked about with me, be it a fo football or a cat or uh, a library, whatever it was. I just loved making those connections. It was honestly, it was just so much more fun than working with grown-ups all day long. Sorry. <laughs> And what about the difference between the schools you were in in New York and those in Tennessee? How did you notice the contrast between those two locations? Yes, um, interesting. You know, I taught in New York City public school system for 10 years. I taught the Gifted and Talented program, and uh, we had a lot of interesting things going on there. And when I moved to Tennessee, I taught general education. Now, there's no doubt New York City had far more administrative uh, red tape sort of requirements that were suffocating. Uh, just one quick example, you know, there was a very strict rubric on how a bulletin board should be displayed. I mean, down to right angles and uh, spacing and content and comments that should be there, et cetera. I, I still have that rubric somewhere and I look at it to amuse myself from time to time. But when I moved to Tennessee, um, it wasn't like that. Again, that was just one example, of course. But Tennessee was a little, a lot more open-ended, uh, which was wonderful. I often chuckled walking through the halls, thinking of my old principal in New York City. My, my, I loved her. I'd learned so much from her, but my strict, strict principal and how she would really have taken, taken some time to get used to how things were in Tennessee. But um, in, in recent years on Tennessee, I would say in many states have been increasing in resemblance to some of that red tape, which I don't at all find a good thing. But, you know, it, it's I'm fortunate that the many years I had, I had time to do the relationship building with my kids to you know, just make special times that I would do certain activities with certain children while other children were working, things that I knew my students needed. Um, the difference really, so far as other than school-wise, my friends would ask me, oh, how are the kids in Tennessee? What's different? And I would say the difference is all of a sudden I have an accent. You know, It isn't that they have an accent. This is where they live in Tennessee, right? But I brought my New York self there. But kids are kids. And that was a delightful thing to have reaffirmed. It's interesting you say that because accents are such an important part, I think, of what we do in school and particularly in England in the 
lower school and in the junior schools, we have this program of teaching children to use sounds we refer to as phonics mm -hmm. in their English lessons. And how you pronounce some of the words does make a big difference. I'm currently living and working in the north of England, but my hometown is very much in the southwest of England. So some of the words have completely different meanings depending on how you pronounce them. So accents are a fantastic thing to have available in the classroom. I'll tell you something, a quick story about that. You know, a, a, a youthful uh, expression we had in New York, and just say it's something to say humorously is, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And it rhymes. So somewhere in Tennessee, I, early on, I was like, oh, you know, we're handing things out. And I'm like, well, you get what you get. And the child interrupted me and said, and you don't pitch a fit. I'm like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't rhyme. But in Tennessee, it does because you say you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. You see, it rhymes there. So I found that that was quite an interesting uh, twist on an old saying that I found quite amusing. And during your time in New York and Tennessee, Victoria, yes. when did chess start to play a role in your professional development? Ah, funny you should ask. Well, I was still in my first year of teaching, that would be in 2006. Um, and again, having being in the gifted program, we were always being told to enhance our classroom and have special programs, which I found amazing. I was just thrilled. Uh, I was already incorporating music and philosophy for kids. I had a big program on that. I had a Toastmasters thing going on, but I was always ready for more. And one day, I wandered into a colleague's after school class and uh, some children were quietly playing a game and I recognized it as chess, but I hadn't really thought about chess for, you know, since I was 12 or something like that. Uh, I had played it with my brother when I was a child and I liked it, but it just totally fell out of my life. We had uh, you know, a number of after schools, but this just happened to be the one I wandered into. And I just walked over and I was intrigued and I looked, was looking at a set where no one was playing, sort of picking up the pieces. And I felt sort of a little magic going on there, if you believe in that sort of thing, just very appealing, unusually appealing. And my colleague came over to say hello and started talking about he loved having the kids play chess in his after school. And he informed me that there was professional development in Manhattan for teachers by an organization called Chess in the Schools. And I was extremely interested. And I'm the sort of person that once I pick something up, I'm going to do it times 10 if, if I have a passion for it. And indeed I did. I went to those I went to as many as I could of those professional development sessions uh, where te teachers from all over New York City would come to this build this wonderful building on, on New York City with all chess decor and oh, it's just absolutely stunning and wonderful instructors. Um, and I would drag other teachers with me when I could and soon it became the staple of my classroom community. Occasionally, you know, I would no, maybe a little more than occasionally, it would give me that strange teacher reputation, but I, I sort of wore it as a badge of honor, you know, the chess lady kind of thing. <laughs> um, but we, I started learning about how to incorporate it, not only as a game, not only just, hey, if you're done, you can go play some chess. We started talking about it and making connections to the 
top the subject material and life itself. And it really took off from there. What kind of observations did the students make when they were playing chess in relation to the wider world? Is it something that came naturally to them? Oh, yes. I think that, see, that's the sort of thing I was referring to earlier. Things like that take, just happen, and they're just so wonderful to watch. You know, I wish I'd written down every single one of them, but or even more of them. But what sort of observations? It would just be, it might just be simple. Let's start simple. Like, oh, you know, Sammy likes to move his knights first. He, he likes to jump over things, you know, like in the playground or something like that, or just... Uh, oh, I like the pawns because I'm not so big either. You know, but if I get to the other side of the board, I can get, I can become something great. They'll certainly connect it to math. I mean, you know, all these things. Yes, I did them, but they did them too. They became fascinated with the value of the chess pieces. And oh, I'm eight, so if I take a rook and a knight, this is how old I am. You know, I mean, you can't get kids to do stuff like that with 10 sticks and cubes out of, you know, on their own, right? But chess pieces, just, you know, touching them, they're, they're just wonderful manipulatives. There's a tactile quality about the whole yes. set, really, isn't there? And did they, it sounds like some of them might have been starting to form some fairly strong connections between the pieces on the board and their own identities. I, yes, I think that's a great way to put it. And, and of course, the games themselves. And they love making, you know, these, we'll talk perhaps about, you know, what's important, the, playing it properly or, or just enjoying it at first. I, I choose the latter. You know, just what sort of strange and interesting formations they could make on the board with their opening moves. And they got a big kick out of that. And it was fun. And it was so many things that were fun about chess, which goes a long way in education. And there's also a sense, certainly from my experience of watching, you know, young learner chess players over the board, there's often a sense of experimentation True. that is quite pleasing to see. A sense of, well, I don't necessarily have to go and sit down and read a book and work through every single one of 15 steps. So I'm just going to move these pieces around and see what happens. That is that is so true. Uh, you know, I loved hearing my students beg to play chess. I always felt greatly rewarded when they, they asked, and that was quite often. And quite often they got their wish. And how did this filter into some of your other teaching? Because the elementary classroom, it sounds like you've got a bit more freedom perhaps than certainly in the English secondary system. Yes, of course, I had uh, different lessons I had to give, standards, you know, of course, you know, all over the place, but I found that chess fulfilled them quite nicely. Um, you know, you're asking how it got into other areas. Well, I mean, I'll just talk about social studies, the geography of the chess board, just the word geography, just understanding what that means, exploring it, looking at the ranks and files, which for people that don't know chess is the rows and the columns. And I remember one student in particular just did not understand longitude and latitude or longitude as they say. Uh, but the chess board, I always had the chess demonstration board up and I pointed towards it. I said, well, look at how, if we pick a square where the rank and the file meet. And I don't even know if I got that far in my sentence when she said, oh, got it. You know, so connections like that when you're looking at something interesting uh, something that's you care about 
it's easier and more fun to try to make connections with it. It's also finding points on a grid would be a similar thing, looking at the chessboard. Connections like that, find the square, we'll find the point on the grid, what the A, B, the axis, etc. So those things come to mind. Wanting to, having nothing to write about. How many children, oh, I don't have anything to write about. Well, what about the game you played with Mia yesterday? How did that go? Oh, I can write about that? You bet you can. If that means you're going to take that pencil to paper and write a narrative for me, you can most certainly write about your chess game. And so many things like that. I mean, I could go on if you want me to, but there really was no end to it. Art, dance, music. It, we found connections for everything. And if I didn't, they did. What connections with music did you find? I'm curious. Ah, well, one of the things we, we did is we found one of the uh, chess parties I had was uh, the children. We found the Arbiter, if you're familiar with from Chess the Musical. And we all sang that song. There weren't that many. I guess when I'm done writing chess books, I should start writing chess songs. There aren't quite enough of them, at least not for kids. But that one was safe and good. And uh, we sang that while moving around the room as chess pieces. You know, the music and dance go together. Uh, we had kids doing night dances, you know, making the L moves and making the bishops did the diagonals and you know, music and notation. You know, notation is a word that we, we use in music. I love music as well. And just writing out our chess moves just the way you would need to notate a musical pattern is something that we talked about at times. So again, it's going back to the idea of pattern formation again. Creating patterns, recognizing patterns, and then knowing that there's more than one way, you know, critical thinking, there's more than one way to approach a pattern, just as you were talking about in your opening, you know, that you have an opening that you're tried and true, and then suddenly it doesn't work out and you have to go back and say, wow, what else could I have done? And in order to be able to do that, and that's why they saw the value of taking notes, which led to taking notes on lessons. You see, it, it, it proves something to them that they then can apply in other areas. And I think it's better that they learn that in chess than me harping on taking notes during lessons so that they could study them. I think they saw the true value in something they cared so deeply about and understood why one should keep a record of what they were doing and learning. I agree with you. There's nothing more painful than going back over the wreckage of a defeat. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true, the postmortem, right? But yes, but, and then of course you see, I'm speaking for myself as well, mostly I do chess puzzles these days, but it's the same sort of feeling. And it's just glaringly obvious what should have been done or what could have been done. But maybe next time you'll remember it and, and, and grow. You know, you have to have that growth mindset. You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? I'd really like to think so. <laughs> and I found it to be true. Well, that's a great introduction to your journey into teaching for us, Victoria. And it's really quite positive to hear you talking so passionately about your time in the elementary school classroom. Yes. And to hear about the role that good personally focused professional development can play in opening up new opportunities beyond teaching that go 
beyond the delivery of curriculum content and the current list of approved approaches to classroom practice and all the rest of the stuff that comes with teaching the paperwork, the red tape. In the next section of the show, I'd like to explore your move into the world of children's fiction, Victoria. Fantastic. And we'll be right back after this. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. BBC News reports on GCSE results and the impact resits in English and Maths could have on poor 16 providers. According to figures it has published on the news website, over 167,000 pupils in England received grade three or below in maths, whilst 172,000 failed English language. The number of pupils not achieving grade four in English language is highest for a decade. The Association of Colleges has estimated that the extra GCSE resits could cost around 16 million pounds for the year and highlighted the yo-yo effect the pandemic has had on resits making planning a huge challenge. Julie McCulloch of Education Union Askell said resits were demoralising for students and reform of English and maths qualifications was badly needed. Last year, only 20% of those retaking a maths GCSE achieved grade four or above. The BBC also reported on GCSE pass rates in England, Wales and Northern Ireland as falling. The drop was steepest in England, but in Wales and Northern Ireland, grades were always meant to be higher. Analysis on the news website also indicates that in England, the gap between regions with lowest and highest proportions of GCSE passes has grown, and that state schools had a steeper fall in pass rates than in private schools. Schools Week features a story on A-level results and the widening attainment gap between North and South. According to data published on its website, the North East now has the lowest proportion of A star and A grades, lower than pre-pandemic levels, at 22%. At the same time, London and the South East have recorded the biggest rises when compared to 2019. Labour's Shadow Schools Minister said the results showed the failure of the government's levelling up agenda. The article discusses a range of factors which could contribute to the disparity across the best and worst performing regions, including existing long-term deprivation exacerbated by the pandemic, food insecurity made worse by the current cost of living crisis, and more usual factors such as attendance, device access and the use of catch-up schemes. Full details can be found on the Schools Week website. The Guardian also takes a look at academic outcomes for pupils, this time through the lens of those referred to social services during childhood. It states that data suggests these pupils are twice as likely to fail GCSE maths and English than other pupils. 
Data from a three-year period found 53% of teens who had been referred to social care did not achieve a grade four pass in both the GCSE subjects. This is in contrast to 24% in those not subject to a referral. The analysis was carried out by the charity Action for Children. It is the first study to examine data for children with a referral rather than just those who receive support. Around 318,000 children a year are referred to social care, although many do not meet thresholds to receive support. The Guardian also featured comments from school leaders on the impact high levels of absence and poor mental health of pupils have had on outcomes for some. Many cited a lack of formal support for pupils and their families, contributing to further strains on school staff as they tried to plug gaps usually filled by other services such as social care and the NHS. Following on from its examination of regional disparity in academic outcomes across different regions, Schools Week also reports on proposals for elite six forms being given the go-ahead. The Eaton Star 16 to 19 Free Schools, a collaboration between Eaton College and Star Academies, will open in Dudley, Teesside and Oldham. This is part of the 15 new free schools announced by government in the last week. The aim is to improve education standards and get more pupils from the North and Midlands to Oxbridge. The Sixth Form Colleges Association has, however, warned that more sixth forms could lead to existing high-performing provision being unnecessarily disrupted. Eton College will provide financial and extracurricular support through its partnership with STAR. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan commented on the 15 new schools saying, we want to make more good school places available to families. The 15 schools also include two new university technology colleges, the first to be approved in five years, and a Brit School North to be opened in Bradford. The sixth form sector has reacted to the new plan, saying that in the 55 education investment areas, there are already enough colleges and school sixth forms in the areas to meet need. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Welcome back to our show on teaching and writing about chess with retired teacher, teacher mentor and children's author Victoria Winifred. Victoria has just given us a vivid sense of her experience of the American elementary school classroom and the role that chess has played in her teaching work. But Victoria later left the classroom to follow a new path into writing children's fiction, fiction specifically focused on chess. So what prompted the move into writing, Victoria? Was it the realisation of a long-held ambition, a calling, as we mentioned earlier, or was this a natural development of your experiences with teaching younger children? Thanks for asking. Um, I wouldn't say that it was a combination of those things. I, you know, I, as I had mentioned earlier, I always tried to support my students' interests in my references and connections in my lessons. And of course, once I had this heavy duty chess culture in my classroom, and it was heavy duty, make no mistake, um, I could go on and on about how much so, but obviously my kids without fail began to love chess. And it was, we were all about chess, just as I had researched books on animals because kids wanted books about animals or about baseball. Um, or about you know 
poor children or boxcar kids, for example, or if they wanted Junie B. Jones books or whatever books it was that were types of books, I would find those books for them and I would buy those books for my classroom library. I, I, that's, you know, I was on a mission becoming a teacher. It wasn't just a job. Well, because chess was so important to us, I, of course, I tried to do the same. And I found a lovely amount of how to play chess books, um, you know, some favorites there. And the kids ate them alive, read them together constantly. But there, I couldn't find any book and about chess just being in the background, chess being a part of children's lives. Yes, of course, there are famous chess scenes. Um, Harry Potter has amazing chess sequence, Alice in Wonderland and others. But there are no books with that as the norm for a lifestyle or a setting. And I was actually finding it somewhat irritating. <laughs> and then at that same moment, I had to chuckle because I sort of realized that that could potentially mean I had an assignment that I needed to fulfill. fulfill. And that's how life has been for me sometimes. You know, I, I need signs, I need billboards, and that was one for me. And it was around that time that I joined the Society for Children's Books Writers and Illustrators and began to hone my craft even further than I had uh, as a teacher so far as children's fiction. And I wanted to write about chess. I wanted chess to be the backdrop or the hobby. I didn't want to write a how to play chess book. There's quite a few. There's, I mean, I'm glad other people will write new ones and they'll be great, but that wasn't for me. I wanted to write a book about kids that had a message in it or a, a feel to it about how to love chess books, not how to learn it, but how to love it or a look how cool chess is kind of book. And go ahead. What yes, kind so of professional development support did you seek or have with your writing or was it something you developed on your own? Well, um, I will say that although I was trained to teach children reading and writing, it also so taught me quite a, a quite a lot. Uh, my first ten years teaching in uh, New York City, uh, one of the top districts too, District Twenty Six, we were partners with uh, Columbia University, and our classrooms were the workshop models for the teachers' reading and writing project from Columbia University. So we were with the uh, experts there the uh, university would send them in a room every a couple times a month every several times throughout the year work with the kids so i learned quite a bit about children's reading and writing then but when i joined the society um, for children's books writers and illustrators it's an international organization for those that write write or illustrate children's books i went to many conferences and seminars and workshops and such and of course, I'd already seen so many children's books. Um, so I guess all of those things came together along with my, my mission, my passion to write these sort of books. I mean, I could go on to talk about how I prepared, you know, those chess fiction books, but that would bring me to that point right now that all that development put me in the right place at the right time to complete this quest. And what did you understand by chess fiction when you were starting out, Victoria? Were there any particular models that you suggested? There weren't many texts around that you were looking to for inspiration. 
quite honestly, there were there were none that I found. Uh, so my idea was just to have kids that played chess uh, as a, on a regular basis, show that it could improve their lives, and, and touch on not to be a, a you know, a, not to be preaching, you know, straight out, but just to show in the story how chess helped them make decisions or see things differently or just enjoy life. And I did that with my, I started that with my first book. I wanted chess to be not the topic to learn, but the topic that the kids in the book were excited about. And you picked the fantasy genre to work in. What particular aspects of the fantasy genre make that task more straightforward than other genres? Well, what happened was, well, I'd like to talk then about my planning and preparation and the research that went into developing that. And the first book I wrote, uh, The Princess, The Knight and the Lost God, a chess story. Uh, I wrote that as a mythological fantasy because I had heard of the chess goddess, Kaisa. Uh, she's often referred to by the top chess players as an aside, usually, you know, I hope Kaisa is with me today in my game, that sort of a thing. And they named uh, one of the computer programs Kaisa as well. I mean, the name has comes up, if you Google it, you'll see, you know, Wikipedia, quite a lot of interesting things about it, about her. And she's some very interesting origins. But really what surprised me the most is that I'd heard of her, chess players talked about her, but there really was almost nothing written about her. They plucked her out of two very obscure poems from hundreds of years ago. Uh, the last, let's see, there was one written, uh, I'm trying to remember what, 1527, a poet named Vida. And then in, 1763, William Jones wrote a very long piece on uh, Caissa, the game of chess. And those were the things where she was documented. And I picked up on that mythology. I decided to use what already existed. I wasn't going to reinvent her, but I took her story forward. And in the last poem that I mentioned, uh, William, James, seven, William Jones, 1763, he had a romance going on between Caissa and the god of war, Mars. And I figured, well, let's go with that because it sort of left off with that. And I decided that Mars and Caissa, Mars in his old age, finally settled down with Caissa. And by the time my book started, they had a 12 year old daughter, Princess Cassie, and they lived in the realm of Chess Mountain. So because I picked up on the goddess Caissa, that's what led to my first book being a fantasy. I actually really had never said, I want to write a fantasy. This just sort of evolved into that. And carrying on from that, I just had a, an adventure occur, a crisis occur where Princess Cassie um, would be sent to earth to escape a big problem that happened on Chess Mountain. Her parents were being unjustly accused of kidnapping another young god. So Cassie is the 12 year old Cassie is the protagonist in my novel. And don't you just know that she ended up in a school in New York City. So this way I was able to connect uh, the mythology that existed in my own what I really know about uh, experience with kids and chess 
and in the storyline basically she's on a mission to help her kingdom and she really didn't want to go to earth but she's surprised that earthlings aren't what she had been taught about humans were different than the horrible things she'd been told and she has a coming of age in this experience realizing that we have to experience things for ourselves and not go by what others tell us and she's able to work in this very chessy classroom that she ended up in and uh, there are all sorts of things going on you know you might find connections to what i said earlier you know, financially uh, financial hardships with kids um, there was a bully in the classroom children with family issues it um, i don't play it very heavy-handed but there are these references and chess factors into helping these children see things differently and uh, quite a lot of drama going on with kingdom and enemies in the midst trying to get her but you can uh, imagine that you'll find the end of the storyline satisfying in one way or the other and i released it on national chess day last year in the, here in the united states and what about the significance of having a female protagonist at the center of a chess fiction text what kind of response are you expecting from readers there uh, well you know I, I i just thought of this this moment perhaps we could think of it as the princess's gambit instead of the queen's gambit right i understand they're coming out with a part two to that series which might pump up the chess interest as well uh, but of course it's natural uh, it's it's very in vogue right now is to have a fe strong female protagonist. I didn't write it for that reason. That is just how it came out. And there are certainly strong male characters as well. Uh, there is a young boy in her classroom who has a physical uh, challenge, and he has a story of his own in, in the plot. Uh, and there are others as well, important male uh, characters as well as females. So yeah i mean it, it 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 checks off a lot of boxes but i truly wrote it from my heart and i you know, wasn't trying to do any of those things it, it just evolved that way and if we think about the balance between entertainment which is what young readers come to novels for mm -hmm. and education how do you seek to strike that balance in your writing mm. well it's true in education and entertainment in my room and in my books, right? You know, Christopher, when I was reading over your bio, I noticed that one of your favorite quotes was by Samuel Johnson, am I correct? And it's, what is written without effort is read without pleasure, which of course is true. But I'd like to build on that because I have a quote that I've heard many versions of it, but one of them is, what is learned in pleasure is never forgotten. So it, it's the natural progression of the previous quote. If you read something in pleasure or learn something rather in pleasure through reading this book or in a good lesson, you, it's going to stick with you. So in teaching and in my books, I believe that it's very important to entertain. Now, some people look down on that phrase, so I'll use the more scholarly word and say engage the students, right? But entertaining is engaging the students so i engage them with draw you know excitement and adventure uh you know high stakes red herrings you know surprises when you least expect them uh, most of the time i hope and 
I mix it up, but it's important to have the underlying theme. To me, it's important that chess is valuable. Chess is important. Chess changes lives. Thinking over some of the things you've said about chess fiction here, Victoria, and the children's response to it, I wondered if there would be any scope for authors developing something along the lines of a series of books structured on the choose-your-own-adventure format, which was quite popular in the mid-1980s, this idea where you read through the text with the protagonist. Often you are the central protagonist of the text or you're closely linked to them. And then you have to make decisions at various points in the text. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that would also lend itself to the study of chess and the experiential decision making that's involved in chess. Yes, I, that idea has crossed my mind on several occasions, on several occasions, that interactive quality, you know, choose your ending sort of thing. And it could connect to variations, right? Like what direction would things have gone and had I chosen that? So yes, thanks for giving me a new assignment when I'm done with the ones I have now. Now I have who knows how many more books to write <laughs> if, that, if I start going in that route. But I have thought of that and I think it's a natural progression, right? It definitely connects with the game of chess. You know, it, right now I'm writing a mystery series. I just did my first book on that. You're talking about very popular books in the you know, 20 years ago or more, 40 years ago, whatever. And uh, I've just started releasing my uh, Cozy Chess Club mystery series. And although I don't have it as an interactive at this point, I do have a mystery surrounding chess sort of along the lines of a to z mysteries or encyclopedia brown sort of thing but modern day but i like that idea very much about the interactive endings and if we think a bit more about the kind of settings within which these events take mm -hmm. place yeah. are you given a bit more freedom with that sense of mystery and magic than perhaps you would have in a fairly realistic high school or junior school type setting for the text? Well, I certainly was with my first book, um, The Princess, The Night and the Lost God. But you know, that was a lot of freedom because I'm dealing with fantasy and gods and you know, princes and kingdoms and all of that. Um, but my current series is actually realistic fiction. I don't, I'm not using that. This is based on an after school chess club and the kids in the chess club you just keep coming up with mysteries that they want to get involved in and solve you know things that happen in the class or in their lives that they bring into the classroom uh, so i like the realistic fiction as well because not everyone likes fantasy so i'm trying to write in different subgenres for children right now that's something important to me as well i don't want to get stuck in one uh, who do you get to test your drafts out on victoria well I'm very blessed. I have, because of my association with the Society of Children's Books, Writers and Illustrators, I was given an invitation to become part of an absolutely phenomenal critique group several years ago with other writers. So every month we exchange chapters with each other and provide detailed feedback to each other that we all see and discuss. It's a wonderful group. And I really, I, I couldn't have done it without them. And they're just so helpful to one another and they're certainly so helpful to me. So they go through the cycle several times with uh, my group. And I also use editors. I'm a big believer in using professional editors 
uh, before you publish your manuscript. It's there's, Having your own set of eyes be the only eyes can be a very dangerous and humbling thing. And all of these people have been very instrumental to my success with these books. I find the critique group and my editors uh, just an incredible resource. And how do you approach school visits? Do you do you get into many schools to read to children? And does your experience as a former teacher shape that visit in any way? Great, great idea. Also, yes, I've only done this. Um, I only started doing that. I went actually back to my old school in uh, Tennessee several months ago during a literacy night, and I was able to show my book and read from it and share it. And I've done many book signings as well. And I have several coming up uh, fairs and festivals. But for formal school visits, it's something I'm definitely interested in. I really enjoyed them myself. I don't remember some of them as very well as in my childhood. But as I was teaching, I was able to see many uh, author visits. And that's helped me sort of keep my materials that I would like to use. I'm thinking about maybe starting that next year sometime. You know, some of the things that I enjoyed seeing from other authors where they would just show the book in an earlier stage, such as the illustrations. And I work with a wonderful illustrator on these books. She's an Armenian illustrator, Louisa Galliston, and uh, she has a folk art flavor to her very creative drawings. And the way I work with her is definitely something I'd like to share in those school visits. I, I'll show them the horrible rough ideas that I sent this talented artist. And she would look at my horrible rough ideas and just do magic with them and create a beautiful and fun illustration. So those are that's one of the aspects I look forward to talking to the kids about and perhaps of course showing them in you know paragraph pre-editing and post-editing and talk about what some of the decisions I made and some of the changes that I made and why you know I loved teaching writing at as a teacher I loved I came to love using the things that I learned from teachers college and Columbia University with the kids and writing all different we wrote all sorts of genres together the kids and you know, the uh, students in my classroom and uh, you know I do look forward and that's another reason why I like writing in different genres within the children's literature category realistic fiction fantasy you know the idea that you uh, and I both agree on you know, the choose your own ending sort of thing uh, yeah so I look forward to that sort of school visit very much. I can do virtual visits. I can do in-person visits if they're within a certain proximity to where I am. Um, it's something I look forward to doing. Well, it sounds like this journey into children's writing has been an exciting and rewarding one, Victoria. Chess fiction, to be honest, isn't something I'd given much thought to at all, really, until our preparations for this week's show. But it does suggest that the novel form has the potential to take the game to a wider audience and help them understand some of its complexities. Yes. And I mean, again, if we look at the adult side of things and look at the, the wave, the chess wave that the Queen's Gambit had, it really had quite an influence and increase in chess plays for quite a while, um, male and female. It just showed chess... And again, those are adult themes, and that's not what I do, but it did have an enormous impact. 
And I would like to think that, you know, the same could be true with the right children's vehicle. I would just my book, if a kid, children read my book. I mean, I'm, I love to see my reviews from the parents and everything and, and the people I meet in person, the book signings, people that come back. Uh, just, you know, means the world to me. And any author that's listening knows how true that is. You know, I also coach a chess club uh, locally a couple times a month, elementary and young middle schoolers. And they read, they've read my book and just that they come in and say, oh, I couldn't believe this thing. I thought it would be the other one, you know, and just to see enthusiasm, true enthusiasm, unasked for, you know, it just it gives you the strength to carry on. And it all began in the elementary school classroom. So I think in the final section of the show, Victoria, I'd like us to explore how teachers who are listening might help inspire the next generation of competitive and casual chess players. And we'll be back right after this. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Well, welcome back to the final part of our discussion on chess teaching and writing with Victoria Winifred. We've talked about the role that fiction can play in developing young chess enthusiasts, Victoria, but I thought it would be helpful to close with some thoughts on how our listeners might seek to promote chess in their schools and communities. In your view, what practical things can teachers be doing to build up a chess culture in their schools and classrooms? Yes, that's a great question. And I'll just talk about classrooms first. <clears throat> the very first thing, easiest thing to do, and it may seem like you know nothing at first, but just get a chess set or maybe just get two or three and add them to your games. Most teachers have a games section and they'll pull out the games on when, when that's at recess, a rainy day, an indoor day at recess. And of course, you could take it outside with you as well. Uh, the chess the chess boards usually come, chess sets usually come with some instructions. Uh, the, if the teachers don't know the game, they might find out, I would dare say, many times a kid does know something about chess already. Oh, yeah, I know this. And maybe they don't know a lot, or maybe they do, but they'll start playing with it. And immediately the other kids would be drawn to it. Uh, and let the kids show you. Let the children teach you what, what they know about chess. And of course, it would be helpful if the teacher would take the time to learn the game. First of all, I've had many a teacher learn the game and uh, that worked with me or down the hall from me, and they enjoyed it quite a lot. And uh, there's a lot of other things, though. I would say that having chess sets around the school at any free play, free time area, just add it. I, I worked at a school in... Uh, Merrillville, Tennessee. And what I really liked is they had chess sets in the lunchroom. And when children were done with their eating their meals early, they were allowed to go over and play chess. So it, it just fills that time. 
uh, perhaps when kids are sitting out in gym because they can't play because their their leg hurt or something or other, uh, just to have a chess set available. If there's more than one, they could play. Or even the individual children like to play with the chess sets and try different things out. The guidance counselor's office, it's a wonderful thing to have there for an activity to do while the guidance counselor speaks to the children and so on. I'm sure there's many other spaces that chess sets could be put in. I heard about your uh, initiative going on over there, again, listening to your opening. I think it is so inspiring. I just wish that, you know, to hear more about that. I wish there could be more around where I am, chess sets out uh, for people to play on. It, if it's, you know, if you build it, they will come sort of thing. And I, I believe that if you want to go a little more extreme, I've always thought that chess would be a terrific uh, subject for a special and what is special is, at least here in the USA, is when a child has art on Tuesdays or music on Wednesdays or guidance or computer on Fridays, why not chess? Why not chess be one of those subjects that they learn if only once a week? Uh, so I think that would be a, a real nice spin on the curriculum. You know, there's a lot in the curriculum that could connect with chess if a teacher is willing to make those references mathematics, uh, critical thinking, you know, planning, patience, knowing that there's more than one way to go forward. Uh, but getting back to things that classrooms and uh, schools can do, it, it needs to be embraced if it's going to be a school thing by the administrator and by the uh, staff and parents. Easy to do, just create some flyers telling the advantages of which there are so many and there's so much documentation on and out there on how chess enhances academics. Chess tournaments, I have them in my classroom on a regular basis, but imagine having that in the as a special activity on you know, before the holidays. Many schools have special activities and quite frankly they're usually scrambling trying to figure out what to do. Should we show a movie? Should we do this? And this is a great thing. Have a chess tournament. You know, it doesn't have to be formal. I fully understand firsthand that we can't do everything to the letter to fulfill, the, you know, in chess in an elementary school. It's a crazy schedule. It's a crazy life. It's a great life. But you can certainly let kids play chess with each other and call it a tournament, you know. Um, in my room, I would have uh, I had the Swiss Sys software on my computer and actual tournaments, you know, Four, rounds of four game, three to four games, et cetera, whenever I could. But another thing to do is to connect online, and this connects with technology. There are wonderful programs and, and organizations online that can help you with chess uh, and, and let the kids play chess. I had all my kids, they're, they're, if I'm allowed to mention the names of these places, you know, First Move was a great teaching program. They learned how to operate that themselves. And Chess Kid, I had all my kids signed up. It was one of my, it was one of my priorities at the beginning of every school year to make sure that I had every child registered on Chess Kid. And this way, you know, what do I do when I'm done? Is a joke in elementary school for teachers. Oh, they, they finish so fast. Well, can I play chess? absolutely you may play chess yeah um, there is a sense isn't there that technology is making it much much 
easier to get involved in chess and to learn from your mistakes that much more quickly too. Yes, and you're able to see notation right away and learn it sort of by, by seeing it and understanding what's happening without learning it, you know, how to do it yourself. Either way is fine. And there's no question that over the board is better than computer, but being a realist, sometimes you, know, you just can't pull out chess sets and set them up and everything else, but a kid can just flip open that laptop that's sitting on that desk, click on chess kid, sign in, and he'll and whoever else is free at that moment they can play each other live silently hopefully across the classroom you know and they love that that was so exciting um and then of course i play them you know on on the big smart board up front but these are just things that um, you know these are great memories for me and these are things that take every teacher understands the setup is yes it's work of course it is but let me tell you the benefits of having chess in your classroom. You will, you will thank Kaisa perhaps when you incorporate chess into your classroom, when you see how much it means to them. Um, it, it's actually, if I can just go mention this also, it's, it's an incredible motivator and uh, behavior modification tool. You know, when I first started using it, I one time said, listen, you know, we really have not had a good day today. We're not going to play chess, you know, at, at the end of the day. And kids were sobbing, sobbing. And it, it struck, it, it absolutely shocked me. It, they, they were devastated and I did not realize, it was early on, and I had not realized how important this was to the identity of them in the classroom. And I, I will admit, I, I wasn't a very good teacher that day because I changed my mind. I said, all right, well, I'll just take two minutes off it because they really were devastated. So I, I, yes, I was weak. Yes, no, I did not stick to my guns that day. But after that, I realized that all I'd have to say was, boys and girls, minus one, meaning there'll be one less minute of chess today. And by minus two, it was dead silent in my classroom without fail. So it, you know, I realized the great power I had in my hands. And I think if principals and teachers really found that out for themselves, they would be very thankful. Nothing ever worked better for me. And I've often said that I don't think I could have made it through my career of teaching without chess in my classroom. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Um, and if we think about some of those students who are getting pretty good, kind of intermediate and above yes. at that early age, what challenges are there in managing the tension between competitive play and social play, working with, mm -hmm. playing with friends in their own classroom who essentially they're too good to play all the time, but perhaps overcoming that sense of fear or anxiety about going out into the wider chess community and competing yes. on a greater stage, as mm -hmm. it were. Well, yes, and I did, that did happen. And, but what was really terrific um, was there were many local tournaments in my area when I was in New York. I lived, uh, I taught in Queens, one of the boroughs of New York City, and I lived on Long Island, a suburb. And I was right on the borderline there of Queens. And what I did, and again, it's work, and you have to really be dedicated and motivated, but my heart was in this. So I was thrilled to uh, invite the children to actual USCF tournaments, rated tournaments. And on Saturdays, I would meet up with the families at the sites of the tournaments. And now these same kids were on a team together. So they might have, they all had perhaps different ratings or different skill sets when it came to chess, but they were together fighting together and 
that really changed the the mood when it came to competition because then back in the classroom, everyone wanted everyone to get better because we wanted to do well at the tournaments. Even the children who couldn't go to the tournaments, and there were a good number of those, they would take pleasure in giving the kids that were going practice. So they were part of it too. And then we would bring home, uh, bring back to the school trophies, many trophies we did win. The kids won individual trophies, first place team trophies. We did well. And uh, boy, that was a great time, Christopher. Yeah, so it's important to have the individual, the casual chess. I'm a big believer in casual chess. I'm not going to browbeat children, you know, Oh no, the you, know, you shouldn't have moved it to the the knight to the rim. I mean, we we might you know we don't ha- always have time for that only chess instruction. Of course, when I was able to coach them, I coached them well. But just the fact that they were playing and experimenting, like you said, you know, maybe they they realize you know, oh I shouldn't have moved it there. They have to be able. You have to let kids make their own mistakes many times. You know. Having been what a kind piano, of, I'm sorry. Having what kind of infrastructure? I'm sorry, just real quick. Having been a piano teacher as well, you know, the parents standing over the shoulder. No, she said that. No, she said that. No, you know, that, that kind of thing doesn't work. Got to let them do it themselves. Yes. I was just going to say, what kind of infrastructure exists at the moment between schools in New York and Tennessee and chess clubs in the community? Is there regular correspondence between the two? Do you have members of the clubs coming into schools and schools going into the clubs? Or are they still two distinct worlds? I'm afraid that to some extent they are distinct worlds. There are certain schools in Tennessee. I know the North City, Tennessee, has a very good chess program going on uh, with the high school. Uh, it, but, you know, when I was there in in Tennessee, it well, I still am in Tennessee, but when I was teaching in the schools, it was mostly me. Um, it was mostly me making this happen. And I you know, I taught in Tennessee for six years, but I can promise you that many chess sets were left behind and uh, hopefully they're still being used. I distributed them to the grades that my students were going in. And it is my understanding that chess is still played in my New York City school um, by some of my colleagues. I'm in touch with a couple and they still teach chess. I wish there was more. It's been, it's been difficult uh, or was difficult for me to find people to connect with, with schools and chess because as over the last couple of years the paperwork has thickened Um, you know the busy work for teachers has increased in Tennessee as well as in New York and less and less time for such creative activities is you know people aren't seeing the full value of them or you know they many other cases they just have to have their other priorities that were given to them by their higher-ups and so on but what I do enjoy, as I mentioned, is I do have my chess club that I meet with a couple times a week. So that fulfills the love for kids and chess for me at this time, in addition to my writing my books and meeting my readers. And how does chess coaching differ in your experience from classroom engagement with chess? Well, chess coaching, of course, now I am, now I can concentrate on chess fully without worrying, oh, did I get my math lesson complete? You know, I know we talked about manipulatives and chess values, but I have certain things I have to do, right? So many times things would have to be cut short or maybe you know, placed in into it, moved on into a different day, etc. But you know, chess club, I do have a range of 
children that have been coming, new newcomers to chess and kids that are fairly talented at it. Uh, so I'm balancing that right now. That's something I'm going through, but I bring a lot of materials with me and I've had a lot of fun just finding uh, the right level for the different children that have been attending. So I might have some of the experienced, more experienced kids working with each other. I might team up a less experienced uh, young, you know, middle schooler with a less experienced one with a more experienced one to play someone that's sort of in the middle, you know, to sort of team up and just have some fun with that chess puzzles while I'm instructing uh, the children. I also love to have kids instruct kids. I mean, that's something I did peer, uh, peer tutoring as it were in chess as well. So I, I really have free reign there to mix and match as I see fit. We're really just building that up in this chess club right now. And I'm just starting to get some regulars. I also have a chess club on um, chess.com. If you Google my author name on chess.com, you'll see a fan club club there. And I do my giveaways there as well. And we're going to start some special events in the months ahead. So you know, there's different audiences require different sorts of coaching. And a lot of times, especially when I'm on my own with a large group, you know, I have to really be creative in the moment, but so far so good. But I really think that developing that chess culture in the schools uh, is just something I'd so advise. It's such a cool thing. Uh, if an administrator takes that on and really publicizes it properly, that I believe that the school community would be would receive it very well. And I also should mention an organization that uh, has a lot of free resources that can be reached out to, of which I'm an educational consultant and occasional blogger, and that's chessineducation.org. And they will give you uh, free guidance there, you know, free, lots of freebies, and definitely connect you. And they're nationwide. They'll help you no matter what country they're in. And um, let me just get my name. Jerry, Jerry Nash is the feed, the chairman of FIDE Chess and Education, and he's a part of this group as well. And they love, they would love to help schools get some ideas and outlines on how to move forward when it comes to putting chess into the schools. So chessandeducation.org, it's free. Thanks. I think that would be very helpful. And if we turn our minds to parents, mm -hmm. because parents can have quite a significant influence on younger children, particularly, and their affections for chess or otherwise, mm -hmm. what kind of things can parents be doing to support their chess playing children at home? Well, so many things and what a great addition it is to the home. Um, you know, when I first started doing this, I admit that I was a little nervous about how much chess I was incorporating because I really went full on with that. And during the, one of my first parent-teacher conferences after that, I had a very serious-looking father come to see me and, you know, how do you do? And he said, oh, my son tells me you play quite a lot of chess in this classroom. So I was sort of taking a deep breath and my hand was scrounging around for my dad, a sheet that told about why chess was so important and helpful. But before I ever found it, he leaned forward and he said, could you teach me how to play? <laughs> so that had been his main question about it. 
he wasn't questioning its existence at all. And often I've sent chess sets home with children um, who didn't have one because I wanted them to play with their families. Many times I, he I hear, I've heard many times over the many years, oh, my mom's going to get me a chess set for Christmas, you know. And they, the parents thank me. They thank me for introducing this thing that they can interact with, with their child. Because my students know chess, they would teach the family. And, you know, what a wonderful confidence builder to be able to bring something home and teach the children. Um, before I say even more about what they can do in the home, I want to mention that I've had a lot of children with learning disabilities that did great with chess, that, that they took to chess kids that on paper and in, under many other circumstances had very difficult concentrating uh, on anything um, would be would come back to me that I can't believe my child just played chess for an hour and a half you know so it has its own way into the mind it's it's really not a repetitious thing so it has special value there now some of the things I spoke at the London FIDE chess conference this past uh, spring I guess was and one of the things I talked about was the value of chess for young children and incoming expectations worldwide for kindergartners often include things like able to follow instructs a short series of instructions understand spatial concepts able to explain uh, the rules of something back to the adult and able to recognize some letters and numbers. So I'll just grab those ideas. And we have the chessboard with A, B, C. Do we have the, some alphabet letters there? We have some numbers. They're looking at the squares. They're learning how the pieces move. So engaging the children in chess and having the child explain back whatever they're, they might be taught if they're learning it from the parents how does could you tell me again how the knight moves you know well oh he moves in an l in two spaces this way and one that way or one this way and two that way and just having the child use chess as that vehicle to do those incoming expectations is a very uh, engaging way to be sure that your child is ready for school if you google incoming expectations for whatever country, for a kindergartner or a first grader, almost all of them, that's a lot of what I did for my research, I, I don't recall any that couldn't somehow be connected to chess. In fact, I looked at some uh, online tests, actually, what's it? It was for incoming students and perhaps actually it was for gifted. And some of the tests that the children needed to take had patterns that looked very much like a chessboard. It wasn't a chessboard, but it was a series of dark and light squares. And they would have to figure out what was missing, what color square would go in the missing square. Would it be a dark one, a light one, et cetera? So there's an incredible connection between what you can get out of chess and what children need to know to be successful in their schools and academics. And it's a wonderful relationship builder in the home. And of course, we spoke earlier on in the show about our current government of the UK and their intention in England. And we think it's going to extend to Scotland, Wales and potentially Northern Ireland too, to not only put chess 
sets into primary schools, but to put chess boards into public parks up and down the country, which has raised some scepticism in some quarters. Yes. Is there a park-based chess culture beyond New York City in the United States? Well, I really can't. I think in some areas, yes. I haven't seen much of it around my area here. It certainly is something I'm interested in. I know in other countries, I would say more so than the United States, but I'd love to see it grow here as well. You know, I, I don't know the politics of you know your, your country, um, you know, the UK, but I, some of the comments I made seem to be political about why it was was or was not a good idea. But I agree with what you said in your intro. Uh, how could it be bad, really, to put chess sets out, you know, in these areas and give chess sets to children? You know, as long as something good is being done, it, you know, so much money is spent on perhaps lesser things. This is definitely a positive. And I would love to have more chess sets out in areas around here. You can't just put random chess sets out. I mean, the, the tables with the squares ingrained in them and perhaps in some of the parks, you could just go to the, the um, main office and they could lend you hand out. And around here, I would think the National Park Service, you know, you're giving me you know, more ideas that are going to cause me to do things, but sure, the National Parks could have that sort of thing available. And perhaps some of them do, and I just don't know about it. It's something to look into, but it's a great idea. Well, listen, Victoria, we need to bring it to an end now, but it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the show tonight. So thank, thank you. you very much for your contribution this evening. Thank you so much. It's truly been my honour and my pleasure. I loved it. I've greatly enjoyed our talk and listening to your advice. And I'll have to start thinking of encouraging more of my colleagues to join our chess revolution in my school once the yes. autumn term begins next week. Let's do it. It's been great to hear just how committed you are to chess education and to getting students reading at the same time. Two things I think that we would agree would always be a positive thing in our English language education systems. I wish you every success Thanks. with your next chess writing project and with the next run of author visits. So thank you very much indeed for coming on tonight. Thank you and you're welcome. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Thanks again to Victoria for her thoughts on chess teaching and writing. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in tonight and texted the show. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. We have a number of new hosts making their debuts, so check out the schedule on the website and give them a listen if you can. The airwaves are fast filling up now in time for the return to the new school year. 
As always, you can catch up on anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org. I would say that Brent Poland and Adam Spence's post-results day review shows are certainly worth your time. And if you have something that you want to say or ask others about education anywhere on planet Earth, then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website, www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month, so thank you for listening. I wish you a productive INSEAD week and a successful return to the classroom if you're going back this month. We will speak again in September. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.